Well, good morning, Chapel family. What a delight to see you here this morning. Well, grab your Bibles if you would. Let's turn to the book of Acts. Maybe a new season, but we're still in the old old sermon series. Going to be here in the book of Acts until right at Christmas time. Acts chapter 9 today. This news just in. Abu Bakar Baghdadi, the head of ISIS, has renounced ISIS and Islam and become a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, before you start tweeting that, I just made it up. Didn't really happen. But that's roughly, most of you didn't believe that a bit. You're going, yeah, right. <laughs> that is roughly the shock factor that the story before us this morning in Acts 9 carries. Acts 9 holds the story of the conversion of Saul. It's a truly stunning turnabout as the great persecutor of the church becomes its great missionary. This story is actually so significant that it it turns up three times in the book of Acts. Right here in chapter 9, as Luke recounts the account of Saul's conversion, and then two times later as the Apostle Paul, his name is both Saul, don't let that blow your mind by the way, it was a common thing for especially Hellenic or or Grecian Jews to have two names, one name that's, that's Hebrew and one name that's Greek or Roman. And that's the case with Saul. Saul was his Hebrew name. Paul was his Greek name. And uh, Paul, though, recounts his story two other times. Acts chapter 22, when he is before an angry mob, and he tells the story of his coming to Christ. And then a couple of chapters later, Acts chapter 26, as he's before Agrippa. And again, he's giving his defense and his, tells his testimony. But Saul, as we have already met him, back in chapter 7, we found that Saul was there. And we found that Saul was, even then, on a mission. And his mission was to destroy the church. Now, he didn't actually say it back then, but he does pretty much say it here. Acts chapter 9, the first couple of verses. But Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Paul was a a rising star among the Jewish rabbis. He was perhaps even a member of the Sanhedrin because he says, Later that when he had opportunity, uh, he cast his vote enthusiastically to kill those who were following Christ. And most commentators and scholars take that one to cast a vote, meaning he was in the Sanhedrin. So he's a rising star because he, he was a gifted orator. He spoke well. He wrote well. He thought well. 
He had studied the Old Testament law and theology under the best teacher of not only of that day, but Jews today still regard uh, still regard Gamaliel as the the greatest rabbi or one of the greatest rabbis ever. So Saul was a star student under a star teacher. The Hebrew of Hebrews, as he says, and he was zealous for the Lord. He says in Galatians 1.14, he says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extreme zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. The fact that he loved so much the law and he loved the traditions and he was so zealous for them, it was what what really pushed him ahead of his peers. It was that same zeal for the Jewish law and tradition that led him to viciously oppose these Jesus followers. As we saw back in chapter 7, as Stephen was being stoned, that it said in verse 58 that his killers laid their robes at Saul's feet as they prepared to do their dirty work and they needed to take off their outer garments so they had better ability to hurl stones at Stephen. Then in Acts chapter 8, just the chapter before this, verse 1, it says, Saul approved, heartily approved of his execution. Apparently, that stoning of Stephen unleashed in Paul and in his cohorts a bloodthirst. They commenced then a great persecution of the church, and we saw that at the beginning of chapter 8, as it led to the, the church being dispersed. And now we see here in chapter 9, it says that Saul was still breathing threats. That word breathing is literally to not to breathe out threats, but it's breathing in. And what it's saying is like American English is full of colloquial expressions, figures of speech. We love them. And we will say, you know, if somebody is really into something, we'll say he eats, sleeps, and drinks. That That's what this expression means. He was breathing in. It is his life breath. He was so consuming him that Saul is driven by this. It's a vendetta that consumes him. Threats and murder. He has no qualms with violence, with seeing people die. It says here, men or women, just to emphasize cruelty, that Saul is not worried about destroying and disrupting families, pulling mothers away from their children. If he thinks anybody has anything to do with this way, he wants to imprison them, punish them, or execute them. By the way, it's a great name for... It's the first usage of this term for the church. And the book of Acts is the only place it's used, but people are trying to find out, what do you call these folks? It won't be until a few chapters that later that they're called, they were called Christians. Interesting study is to go through here, by the way, to see how many different names that Luke uses for believers in Christ. There will be disciples and saints and, and in this case, those who follow the way. And you can go on, but there are quite a few and it's kind of fun just to see if you can find them. Not only is Saul driven, he is relentless. As we saw last time, the church had already scattered in chapter 8. 
There were at one time up to some 30,000 believers hanging around Jerusalem, sitting at the apostles' feet, listening and being taught, soaking up the Word of God. And as the persecution broke out in chapter 8, it says they, they fled, scattered throughout Judea and into Samaria. Many of them have been arrested and many of them killed. But all that is not enough for Saul. He's driven and he's relentless and he, he feels now that he is compelled to go hunt them down even to the point that he is going to leave Jerusalem and go 140 miles north to the city of Damascus. And it doesn't say why he's doing that. My guess is he's trying to go to the outer limits and then he's going to plan to work his way back and see if he can get as many as possible. He secured papers, it says, so it's all legal. He plans to take prisoners back, it says, and bring them bound. What that means is he's not traveling alone. He's got to have at least a sizable cohort of soldiers with him. And he's on the way to Damascus. Verse 3. He plans to arrest folks. God has other plans. God plans to arrest Saul. Now as he went his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. And so they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. It was midday somewhere between Jerusalem and Damascus brightest part of the day, and yet there was an intense light, brighter than the sun, Paul writes. It drove Saul and everyone with him. Here it just says Saul fell to the ground over in chapter 26. It says they all did. Then after a bit, everybody else got up, but Paul was still on his face, cowering as it were before this light. You can only imagine what it must have been to be some kind of a light that literally knocks you off your feet. He hears a voice, Saul. Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's interesting if you go back to in the Gospel of Luke, the same author, three times Jesus will repeat a name. He'll say, Martha, Martha. He'll say, Simon, Simon, he'll say, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Every time there's a bit of a rebuke, but in every case there is deep emotion. And what I gather here is that as Jesus is calling out to Simon, 
He's not calling out to Simon like you and I would have probably in this situation. See, from my standpoint, what Saul deserves is a lightning bolt or the uh, heel of a boot on the head. You know, that big boot coming out of heaven that's about, you know, the size of a big building. (laughs) And just, Saul! Boom! (laughs) At least there would be some anger. Saul! What are you doing? You know, that, but that's not, this is Saul. It's a gentle rebuke. They realize again that the grace of God is astounding. Saul has been killing Jesus' followers. Saul has been persecuting godly people. And yet Jesus is gentle with him. This account here in chapter 9 is really just the Cliff Notes version of this event. It's, it's just part of what happened. It's, it's part of what was said. I know that because when you compare chapter 9 with chapter 22 and chapter 26, what you discover is that all three accounts have different information. And and so what we see in any of them is not the whole picture. And I think if we put them all together, we don't have the whole picture. But going to chapter 26, we find that Jesus says something else that's not here in, in this chapter or in this account, Jesus said, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. And we all go, oh, that's so deep. We have no idea what it means. So what does he mean when he says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads? Well, a, a goad is a, is a long stick that's very sharp and pointy you know, on the end. And it's what a... a uh, farmer or a herdsman would use if he has an ox and he's trying to get the ox to cooperate, like a farmer plowing the field. Uh, to, if the ox is wanting to go the wrong way, the goad, you'd, you'd stick it in the back of his, you know, hit the back of his leg and ho ho, and he'd move. And so what he's saying is, Saul, it's hard to kick against the goads. In other words, what he's saying is, I'm the farmer. And I've got a goad, and Saul, you're the ox. Apologies to all oxen. <laughs> saying, Saul, I've been goading you. I've been hitting you with the stick, with the pointy end, trying to get you to go the right direction, and you've been kicking against it. And guess what happens when you kick a sharp stick? It hurts. Saul, it's hard to kick against the goad. By the way, there's a valuable lesson there for all of us. (laughs) I think God often goads us. He often gets out His little sharp stick and (laughs) tries to nudge us in the right direction with just a gentle little prick. And what do we do? We kick against it and always, always you will suffer for that. It will hurt more. The message is that Saul, I've been trying to get your attention for a long time. I've been putting things in your path and nudging you, trying to get you to go the right way, and you just won't do it. There have been missed lessons all along the way. Saul is confused. 
Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul, it's hard to kick against the goad. Who are you, Lord? He's confused. I think he knows it's God, but he's just not sure what's happening. Doesn't know what to say. He says, who are you, Lord? And the response was, says here, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Can you just imagine as those words sink in? This is a man who will later write, actually he, he will, as he's speaking at a trial, he will say before the chief priest of the Sanhedrin, I have sought every day to live with a clear conscience. And he really believes that he has been, he's been working for God. His whole life he's dreamed of hearing the voice of God. And today he does, and he finds out it's Jesus. Can you imagine what's going through his mind right now? Sorrow, horror, fear. I'm sure he remembered those Stephen's words before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 7, where he said, where Stephen cried out there in the Sanhedrin, he said, look guys, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the throne of God. Saul was probably one of those who put his hands over his ears and screamed, la 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 la, I can't hear you, as he rushed on Stephen and they hauled him out of town to kill him. And he just realizes that all this time he's been playing on the wrong team. He is 180 degrees in the wrong. Everybody he thought was wrong was right, and everybody he thought was right was wrong. I don't think Saul ever thought he was wrong, ever. Jesus says, it's me who you're persecuting. Jesus is alive. He's risen from the dead. He is the Messiah. And He is God. Up till this point in his life, Saul has been convinced that he's pretty good. He, he is, up till now, he's, he's got impeccable religious credentials. Saul would later write to the Galatians, he'd say, hey, if you could get in on good works, I'd have it nailed. I was the Hebrew of the Hebrews. The best of the best. But with his face planted in the dirt, cringing in the blaze of the holy glory of God, Saul realizes that he is a sinner. Probably the words of Isaiah are ringing in his ears where Isaiah says all of our righteousness, all of our best good is like filthy, soiled rags. Not suitable for saving us, 
not even suitable for cleaning us up a little bit. The best stuff we can do doesn't cut it. Probably for the first time in his life, Saul is having to realize that his goodness gets him nowhere and he's got nothing left. But what Saul found as he is laying face flat in the dust is he finds the grace of God in Christ. He finds that it's Jesus who saves not good deeds. He probably has heard this in his arguments and debates with Stephen. He probably heard this from those whom he had arrested and was persecuting and those who were dying and who would call out in their last breath and preach the good news of Jesus. And he wouldn't believe it. But now in his conversation with Jesus, He has no doubts anymore. Part of their conversation actually was this this salvation that is by grace through faith. You find it over in chapter 26 in his account in verse 18. And he says that that part of this thing that that, that Jesus commissions him to do is to go and tell the Gentiles that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by grace. Faith in me. Not sanctified, not saved by good works, but sanctified and saved by faith in Jesus Christ who paid the price, who was the sacrifice. If you ever had questions about how you're saved, it was all answered right here. And Paul believes. No longer does he doubt about Jesus. In verse chapter 22, the second account of this story, verse 10, we find another little phrase or a response that's not here in chapter 8. Paul, in response to Jesus, saying that it's me who you are persecuting, Saul responds with, Lord, what shall I do? As he's believed on Jesus, what he's saying is, the emphasis here and the important thing is, what shall I do, Lord? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. Believing in Jesus has changed everything. And what Saul knows is at this minute, the life that he knew before is done. He can't go back to being a rabbi. He can't go back to the Sanhedrin. He is now one of those whom he has been hunting. The hunter is become the hunted. And so he says, Lord, if you are in charge, what do you want me to do now? Because whatever it is, I'm in. That's what he means by that. What shall I do, Lord? I'm in. So Saul was arrested. He was rebuked gently. He realized 
I'm sure in a very short time, all these things flashed about how God had been trying to get His attention all along the way. He's realized His sin. He realizes that Jesus saves. And He's all in now for Jesus. Verses 10 through 19. By the way, Saul began this trip physically seen, but spiritually blind. Now, He's physically blind, but he sees spiritually. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias! And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me to you, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. Taking food, he was strengthened for some days. He was with the disciples at Damascus. Saul was enlist, is enlisted here. God recruits a man named Ananias. We don't know anything else about him other than what we see here, other than he was a godly man. I imagine perhaps he was just having his morning devotionals, little prayer time. And God appears to him in a vision and says, Ananias, here's an address. Go see a guy named Saul. (laughs) And he responds probably like I'm afraid most of us would. We'd have a few issues. I don't know if you've ever done this where you felt the need to inform God about stuff. I I heard you, God. (laughs) Let me just let you in on a few things. I've got some intel here. (laughs) It may be stuff you don't know about, but this guy Saul... He's working for the other side. And he's got, he's, he, he came here on a mission to arrest us. We're trying to figure out how to hide from him. And you want me to go find him. That's insane. And God says, go. And Ananias says, okay. God says, I've got plans for this guy. A purpose for him. He says, That Saul is a chosen instrument. Over in Galatians, Paul says, He chose me from birth. All the way running through this is the sovereign hand of God. And make no mistake, that is always the case in all of our lives. Saul wasn't looking for Jesus. He wasn't seeking to find Jesus. He was seeking to... Kill Jesus' followers. 
God sovereignly stepped in as God had a purpose for him. Few things Saul, that God designed for Saul to be. One of them is Exhibit A. As the most notorious convert to Christianity, he was going to be Exhibit A. The change in Saul is a great evidence, even still today, for the reality and the truth of the Gospel of Jesus. Why would Saul leave a position of rank, and privilege, and wealth who could have made his way up into the very highest echelons of Judaism and walk away from that to join this way which all it meant for him was suffering and poverty and difficulty the rest of his life. The only reason is because it's true. He also intended for Saul to become an author. Saul becomes a unique apostle, as he mentions 1 Corinthians 15, an apostle untimely born whom God used to pen roughly a quarter of the New Testament Scriptures in length or half of them roughly by number of books, depending on how you want to count. Saul becomes the bridge that gets the Gospel from the Jewish realm where it has gone from Jerusalem into Judea and into Samaria. But how is it going to get to the Gentile world? Well, God prepared Saul as a unique person, again, from birth. Someone who was born a Jew, yet born with a Roman citizenship. Someone who was comfortable in both Jewish culture and Roman culture. Someone who had incredible intellect and education who could argue and debate with both Jewish rabbis and Greek philosophers. A devoted Jew who intimately knew the Old Testament Scriptures inside and out. A man fluent in Greek and fluent in Hebrew and Aramaic and perhaps other languages. Paul was a most unique man. And above all, someone who could suffer. Matter of fact, he tells Saul, you're going to suffer a lot. And this isn't karma. You know, what goes around comes around. And what you dished out, Saul, is going to be dished out back on you because that's the way things work in the universe. Well, it's not karma. But Saul does suffer greatly. Arrested many times, falsely accused, slandered, imprisoned for many years, beaten countless times. Five times he receives 39 lashes, scourges. That could kill you. Three times beaten with rods, or as we call it today, caning. That can kill you. Stoned and left for dead. He endured cold and hardships and poverty. And after all the attempts to kill him, he was finally martyred for his faith in Rome. He suffered. But Paul says he did it gladly. And when you read his, his letters, he says, I gladly suffer for you. 
Paul was enlisted in the church. He was connected here through Ananias, connected to the church. As Ananias comes and meets with Saul, he comes in, puts his hands on Saul, and the first words out of Ananias' mouth are, Brother Saul. In this moment, Saul is, the church is connected to Saul. Ananias prays over Saul so that he might, as Ananias says, receive the Holy Spirit. Saul is baptized. By the way, I probably don't talk enough about baptism. I've been convicted about that a bit. As I've been going through here. You please notice that last week with Philip, as he was sharing his faith with the Ethiopian and he becomes a believer, one of the first things they do is he's baptized. Here with, with Paul, with Saul, immediately he's baptized. He hasn't eaten for three days, and yet he doesn't eat again. Still doesn't eat until after he's baptized. In obedience to Jesus' command, baptism is an important thing. It doesn't save us, but it is significant in obedience. And then I notice that it says here that Paul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. The church connected with Saul, and Saul connects with the church. It's a lesson there. The church is significant, it's important. Jesus loves the church. And if you don't love the church, there's something wrong with your relationship with Jesus. Because if you love Him, you'll love what He loves. And He loves the church. It's significant. It's a cool thing when you go back and you, you look at Jesus' words and, and He says to Saul, He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting Me? And Saul says, Who are you, Lord? And He says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But Saul wasn't persecuting Jesus. He was persecuting the church. Absolutely. And that's the point. Jesus is saying He identifies so closely and so intimately with His church that when you hurt the church, you hurt Him. Moms and dads, we get that because you know how it is with our kids. If your kid is hurt, you hurt. Somebody steps on your kid's feeling, breaks your kid's heart, it breaks your heart. Your kid is in the hospital and you look at them and your heart breaks. Most of us as parents have been there. And Jesus says that's how He feels about the church. You pick on them, you pick on me. So Jesus is aware of every little pain in every part of His church. He's aware of our brothers in Nepal who just a couple of months ago were beaten severely by radical Hindus while these brothers tried to pass out relief supplies to folks suffering from earthquake. He's aware of our Algerian brother, Buhafs, who was just in the last few weeks sentenced to five years of prison for speaking for Jesus over Mohammed on his Facebook page. He knows and is aware and is concerned about Asia Bibi 
a Christian mother who's on death row in Pakistan for allegedly blasphemy against Mohammed. He feels their pain. And he feels your pain too. Do you ever feel like you're alone and he doesn't care? Jesus says here, yes, he does. Yes, he does. Paul gets a new mission. And his new mission is to be a witness. Immediately, we've heard that he got that mission. God told told Ananias that's what he was going to do when you read his account over in Acts chapter 26. Jesus tells Paul directly, I'm sending you out to be a witness to the Gentiles. Verse 20, immediately he proclaims Jesus in the synagogue saying He is the Son of God. And all who heard Him were amazed. And they said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who call on this name? And has He not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? Saul increased all the more in strength and he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And when many days had passed, they responded the same way that he did to Philip. If you can't out-argue him, kill him. So when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Immediately, immediately Saul embraced the mission. He started proclaiming the truth about Jesus. He wasted no time being a martise, a witness. Two takeaways for us this morning. First is this. God's grace is huge. We need to embrace the grace of God. There is no person, no one who is too far gone, too bad, has done too much to be beyond the grace of God. Commentator Johann Lang said it this way, There is no fall so deep that grace cannot descend to it, and no height so lofty that grace cannot lift the sinner to it. God's grace can take the worst of the worst and elevate them and use them to do the noblest of the noble, the best of the best. That's the grace of God. At one time, Saul thought that he was the best of the best. But then he met Jesus. And there laying flat on his face, he realized that he wasn't the best of the best. He was, as he wrote later to Timothy, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the worst. So I realized I wasn't the best of the best. I was the worst of the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display His unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on Him and receive eternal life. In other words, he's saying, Jesus saved me. And so if you're out there thinking, Jesus can't save me because I'm too bad, He says, look at me because I'm worse than you. And Jesus saved me. And if He saves me, He'll save you. Call on Him today. Embrace the grace of Christ. 
He will save you. If you're already a believer, is there somebody you think they'll never, ever become a believer in Jesus Christ? They're just too hard. They're just too far gone. Nobody ever, ever, ever thought Saul would become a believer in Jesus Christ. And so don't give up. Pray, share, and don't give up on those folks you know who don't know Jesus. Secondly, the other takeaway is that God has a purpose for you. Just like He had a purpose for Saul, He has a purpose for you, and you need to engage that. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you're just living life, going through the motions day after day, you need a wake-up call. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, for we are His, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for you to do. Before you ever born, before the foundation of the earth, God created things for you to do. He created things to be done for which He created you uniquely. You need to engage the mission. In general, every one of us have the mission to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. Acts 1 8. We've been quoting that almost every week. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and unto the ends of the earth. But God has prepared specific works for you, as we saw here. Your mission field might not span the whole Roman Empire like Paul. Your mission field or your purpose might not be to proclaim the gospel to millions of folks like Billy Graham. But perhaps God's plans for you are to be an Ananias. That person that God uses to speak to a Paul. Perhaps God's purpose for you is to be like an Edward Kimball. Just a lowly Sunday school teacher whom God used to reach a shoe salesman for Jesus who happened to be named D.L. Moody who became a great evangelist. See, the point isn't that you need to go out or I need to go out and start searching for what is it that God's purpose is for my life and I can't do anything until I find it. No, it's just get busy faithfully serving Jesus where you are. Doing what He puts in front of you. And believe me, He won't let you miss whatever His purpose is for your life if your heart is to serve Him. If your attitude is and your prayer is that of Saul's here where he says, Lord, what shall I do? And Father, may that be our prayer each one of us this morning. Lord, what is it that You want me to do? Forgive us, Lord, for being caught up with so many other things that don't matter. We get wrapped up in the the busyness 
of life. And it's not that it's wrong to be to go shopping, to buy presents and to decorate and to do all these other things. But Lord, forgive us for taking all the all of these things and making them the priority in our lives. And we forget the mission altogether. Lord, may we be faithful to be Your witnesses in our Jerusalem, in our Judea, and in our Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name, Amen.